Welcome to your digital reputation. Here's your host, Roger Christie. Hello, and thanks for joining us. My name's Roger Christie, founder of digital reputation advisory firm, Propel. And today on the podcast, we're asking the question, is digital transformation truly possible without digital leaders? Late last year, I read an article in the Australian Financial Review that left me nodding my head furiously in agreement. The headline was, Why Public Sector Leaders Need to Change Their Style. It was a joint piece written by AFR journalist Tom Burton, Deloitte Simon Cooper, and one of Australia's leading authorities working at the intersection of policy, public sector reform, technology and innovation, Martin Stewart Weeks. And it talked about how the art and practice of public sector leadership was rapidly changing. Driven by a perfect storm, if you will, of ongoing digital transformation, COVID, and a dramatic shift in citizen expectations for government leaders to be much more visible and accountable. And what the article spelled out beautifully, and what I suppose resonated most with me, is the notion of a fifth, often forgotten, yet crucial dimension of leadership in our digital world, whether public or private sector, to be honest, and that is public profile, storytelling, and engagement. To put it bluntly, leaders today can do a wonderful job driving digital transformation behind the scenes. But if they fail to communicate progress, outcomes, or even those speed bumps along the way, they will ultimately fail to win over stakeholders in the accessible, searchable digital world we live in. So unless leaders control the digital narrative around transformation, others will determine whether something is a success or failure. This is such a crucial topic of discussion right now, particularly in the public sector given the need for leaders to adapt to changing expectations around them. For leaders, if service delivery is now a given for audiences, digital storytelling can be your differentiator and secret weapon. So it's an absolute pleasure to have the leading authority I mentioned earlier sharing his wisdom on the Your Digital Reputation podcast as founder of Consultancy Public Purpose, a regular figure on government digital-related task forces and boards, and someone who has decades of state and federal government experience behind them, it's a very warm welcome to Martin Stewart-Weeks. Thanks so much for joining us, Martin. Thanks, Roger. Delightful to be here. Excellent. Now, Martin, let's dive straight in as we love to do on this podcast. In your view, is digital transformation truly possible without digital leaders, without leaders themselves being active online? Yeah, it's a great question. And as you say, cut straight to the chase and let me give you the simplest possible answer. The answer is no, it's not possible. But let me quickly contextualize that if I could with two observations very quickly. The first is that I think we've got to recognize that the notion of a digital leader has a couple of dimensions to it. That is to say, a leader who is comfortable in and with the digital world, but also a leader who understands that leading digital organizations in a thoroughly digital way is itself a new form of leadership, some of which is very, very recognizable and familiar, some of which is not. That's the first observation I'd make. There are several dimensions of this notion of digital leadership and why it's so central. Second observation I'd make, funnily enough, comes from a conversation I was having recently where I was listening to a fellow called Michael McCauley, who's the Professor of Public Administration at Victoria University in Wellington. He's talking about a very important issue, the building blocks of trust, particularly in and around government. And he put three elements on the table, credibility, reliability, and intimacy. 
That was his third observation. And I was listening to him carefully, given the conversations that you and I have had in the past about this about this issue. And it suddenly struck me that this notion of intimacy, this notion of being able to build up not just a sense of trust, but what Michael McCauley describes as a sense of trustworthiness, requires leaders to be engaged with both the people they lead and the people they interact with in a much more intimate way. And let's be serious, we're not talking about intimacy in any inappropriate fashion. We're talking about intimacy in a way which says we have as leaders to be able to be more open. We have to reveal, if you like, more about ourselves. And we have to be capable of talking about our work in a narrative and story form so that we begin to build up this sense of intimacy-based trust. That's why the digital leadership component of transformation has become, I think, so hugely critical. So that's my quick opening framing for this conversation. And it's good framing too, Martin. Literally a conversation I had earlier today, and I wouldn't say they're interchangeable, but that idea of intimacy um, matching up with this idea of vulnerability, there's got to be a level of letting the guard down. And as you say, the appropriate type of intimacy or vulnerability, no one needs to reveal everything. But I do think there's an element of how can we use the digital environment to create connection? And that absolutely does involve a fair degree of intimacy, as you're saying, or, or Michael McCauley was saying, um, or vulnerability. And that, that's almost a must-have for leadership today. Yeah, I'd agree with that completely. And as you say, you know, let, let's be sensible and grown up about this. I think we all understand we're talking about this within obvious um, uh, limits, but nonetheless, it's foundational. I might say the thought occurs to me too, as we uh, kind of begin to unpack this and get very close to the chase very quickly, one of the reasons I think for many people, leaders can often be uh, people who don't seem to be very comfortable being vulnerable, if you like, or showing that sense of intimacy in the sense we're using it here. It does, I think, have to do with quite difficult notions of power uh, and quite difficult, diff difficult notions of accountability and uh, control. So to some extent, I think we're still working with a leadership paradigm, if I can use a probably unfortunate word, we probably shouldn't use that word too often, but a leadership style where the notion of holding on to what you sense is your power and your ability to control agenda seems to suggest that you shouldn't, in fact, be engaging too intimately. Uh, some sense of distance is, in fact, quite important as a way of reinforcing that you're in control, you've got the agenda. I don't think that works anymore. And I don't think, in fact, I don't think it's worked for quite a long time, to be perfectly honest. But the digital world, its deep rhythms, if you like, of openness and engagement, just I think just do not allow that kind of model to work anymore. And I think we're beginning to see some leaders uh, happily responding, frankly, to an invitation of this new context to start being much more intimate in a storytelling, engaging way. And let's be fair, some leaders who frankly find it quite difficult and still find it difficult to, uh, you know, come out from behind the closed door, if I can put it like that, and behind the desk and start engaging with their teams and their world in a way which, yeah, I think for many of them is unsettling, uh, slightly unnerving, and does seem to uh, take away, as they sense it, 
a sense of power, a sense of control, a sense of kind of being, <laughs> be, yeah, being uh, being on top of things. Um, whereas I think, in fact, in many ways, it's almost exactly the opposite. And of course, there's, there's safety. We must acknowledge that too. There's safety that comes from having that institutional layer between, you know, audience and individual. If we're talking about leaders in this case, there is comfort in that. But we also know that in a digital world, that connection, that vulnerability, it can't come from an institution. It can't come through the agency so to speak. So there needs to be a letting of that guard down so that people can connect more meaningfully in order not only to, as you say, lead effectively today, but also to resonate with audiences who have different expectations of leaders today, even in the public service. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think it's important to recognise that there's a theory and for some people in terms of the way they've been trained and their longer term experience in the public sector, there's a theory that says the notion of, as it were, hiding behind your office, uh, hiding behind the structure is actually quite a good thing in a public servant. In other words, the idea is you're not supposed to be too personal and too engaged. I, I completely understand that. And I don't want to in any way to belittle that kind of theory, because I think it, there are there are some important elements in that in terms of how you have to act and behave as a public servant compared to perhaps how you might act in a, in a corporation or a, an NGO. But that, that having been said, I think the underlying issue still is um, how do you in a sense, break away from the, the, the worst aspects of some of that framing um, to get this slightly more uh, engaged, intimate um, uh, sense of relationships with the people you're working with and the issues you're dealing with. Absolutely. And what we're going to try and unpack today, as you've outlined, is this idea of connecting the process of transformation to those personal stories as a way to bring people on the journey, I suppose, and tapping into that storytelling element at that personal and individual level. So, Martin, is this something that you feel, does it extend to elected officials only? Are we talking about politicians here or are bureaucrats involved as well? Is it across the whole spectrum of government? And, and what's your view on that and why, I suppose? Yeah, good point. I think the answer is it has to be across the whole spectrum. It's going to be, uh, how can I put this, uh, mobilised in perhaps different ways for different roles and different places in the government uh, process, of the process of governing. But no, I think broadly speaking, the answer to your question is that increasingly, and I think we do have some good examples, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about those in a little while, we are going to see, and we are beginning to see, um, both politicians, elected officials at various levels, um, but also bureaucrats, and again, at various levels, uh, beginning to learn how to harness the new rhythms of this intimacy, if I can put it like that, given the, the way we're describing it, in ways which are both appropriate, uh, sensible, but also incredibly effective for the kinds of engagement outcomes that we're trying to get to. So broadly speaking, yeah, I think this is across the board. It's a challenge and a an opportunity, and perhaps being slightly more positive about it, huge opportunity, I think, for anybody who's engaged in the business of public governance, if you like, and engaging in that work, uh, either in the elected political sphere or in the bureaucratic sphere. And it is about finding that sweet spot, isn't it, that balance? Because as you said, we've got to respect the context that a lot of, um, you know, the, the, from a bureaucratic perspective in particular, the context with which people are coming at this from. There's a mass movement around them towards this much more intimate engagement, but intimate engagement at scale through digital channels. And as you said, there's been a tendency to stand behind the institution in the past. So these aren't comfortable tensions to deal with. They are genuinely opposing. So I suppose if we can try, maybe as you're saying, the opportunity here and try and focus on um, some of the positive 
opportunities and, and best practices for those listening. How would you say that the best leaders, the best examples of those who are starting to do this effectively, how are they communicating both the journey and the destination of transformation to staff, to media, to citizens? What, what sorts of things are they doing differently that makes them effective? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and certainly my response is very much, you know, I can't claim to have done a sort of forensic um, uh, analysis, but I've got a lot of experience watching how this happens in the in the world, certainly the worlds that I move in. There's a couple of observations I'd make. The first one, interestingly, is something around um, intensity and regularity. So part of the tradition in the public service and in politics was certainly when I started working in this game, yeah, I have to say an awful long time ago, probably close to 35, 40 years ago, there was a tendency, obviously, for political communication and any kind of communication to be relatively rare relatively senior and relatively static, you know, a press conference, a press release, a speech, you know, or maybe an interview on a, at the ABC if you're lucky or the commercial channels, you know, get, getting really exciting. Uh, by and large, though, it was an intermittent affair. What I think we're seeing in this new world and is in this new thoroughly digital world is that the real art here is to be communicating regularly, quite intensely, Lots of messages, lots of stories, lots of interactions, often quite small ones, so that you're often using a story or a particular moment in some work you're doing or an achievement that suddenly has been achieved in, you know, a, a goal or a milestone that's been achieved in a project, and out you go and you start telling that story. So I think part of the um, skill the art and practice of this new kind of communication is, um, if I can, if I can sort of coin a phrase, you know, do it early and do it often. Um, that's that's one dimension. The second dimension, I kind of just briefly commented on just a moment ago, and I think the answer is often you have to start communicating often about relatively small pieces of the story, so that you can get people to concentrate on what's happened and what's been achieved, but immediately find a way to link it to the big story. So you don't just leave them with the moment of achievement or the thing you're dealing with or what you're trying to achieve. You constantly have this way of moving comfortably between the, the story itself and the context in which that story makes sense. And I think really effective communication, I suspect this has been true for effective communication. I don't need to tell you that. This is kind of what you do for, for a living. But um, I think effective communication has always been about the ability to link your story with why that story makes sense. And what I find that these new uh, digitally capable uh, political and bureaucratic communicators are doing constantly is using small pieces of communication to get this sense of momentum, this sense of progress, but also this sense of context so that you don't just leave people with the thing and the story and the picture and the, you know, the hurrah, the moment or whatever it might be, but you constantly remind them about why that matters and where it's going and why this is, you know, step 43 and 110 step program or whatever, whatever the, whatever the context is. So speed and intensity, regularity, small pieces, uh, to coin a phrase, sort of loosely, but well connected to the bigger story. I think to me are some of the hallmarks of the ways in which I'm beginning to sense that we're political and bureaucratic leaders are beginning to use these new tools and these new rhythms. They're having really quite an impact. And you can tell that impact partly by the way people respond to what they're doing online and very simple measures like the number of people who look at what they're saying and like it. And, you know, um, we're getting uh, we're getting some fairly, you know, fairly helpful 
quantitative measures about ways in which these kinds of methodologies begin to hit the mark with the people who are listening and watching. It's really helpful framing and I think also it talks to the the journey that a lot of uh, public sector agencies have been on around social media, which is more traditionally towards those, you know, larger, uh, big budget, big impact brand campaigns and trying to use social media platforms as a way to get targeted reach, but targeted reach at scale, reaching people in a cost-effective manner. And so what you're talking about there in terms of this approach around small pieces of communications is very counter to that. And I love that. And, And it's more recently, we've had uh, conversations across both public and private sector about this distinction between brand and individual, because what I think we, we're observing, brands are now trying to tell some of those small stories, as, as you um, as you framed it. But what we're noticing, the nuance there is brands telling human stories, telling those smaller stories and smaller moments versus humans telling stories. That's a huge difference because a brand speaking on behalf of a person is still a brand. It's still an agency. It's still an entity. A person telling that story plugs in beautifully to this intimacy idea, this idea of intimacy at scale that can be delivered digitally. And you only need to look at things like the Edelman Trust Barometer to see, you know, government has a trust crisis, sadly, yet individuals People like me, leaders, um, uh, respected authorities in any space, when you look at it at an individual level, that's where trust is greatest. And we need to find a way to harness this. And I do firmly believe that as part of digital transformation, leaders themselves need to be part of that dialogue. They absolutely need to be a a regular voice, as you're saying, in that discussion online. No question about that. Uh, And I I think going back to our very first question, this, this is really now becoming, and we made that point in that article you referred to at the beginning that we put together late last year, leaders have to make, this is really becoming a key part of their toolkit, I, I think, this ability to, to do this stuff. I, I think it will become increasingly unacceptable for people in leadership positions to sort of say, oh, I don't do that sort of thing. You know, I leave that to my comms people or I leave that to my, I don't know, EA or somebody, you know, I don't do that. Or somebody writes my a couple of Twitter messages for me. I don't do that kind of thing. You know, it's a bit like saying I don't, you know, use a pen or, you know, I don't use a computer. Well, you know, it, it, it just isn't any, it, it isn't going to be uh, okay very shortly if it isn't already for leaders to effectively say, look, you know, that's just not my gig. I think it has to be. It's interesting as you were talking, I was just thinking there's something very resonant and very interesting in my, because it sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? Intimacy at scale. Like it sounds like those are two ideas that are absolutely contradictory. And yet we do live in a world where we are now engaged with an exploration, if you like, of new tools and platforms which absolutely provide that opportunity if you do it well. It isn't a bad thing, though, to remember. And I've just as we were talking, an image came back in my mind of old footage of what Franklin Roosevelt as a president used to call, I think, his fireside chats, which were basically literally him sitting next to his fire in the White House usually on radio, obviously, um, you know, crackling fire in the background, having a little sort of quiet personal chat on a Sunday night, basically with the entire United States. So in one's, at one level, you, you'd have to say, good politicians, politicians have always striven, strived <laughs> to find a way to be intimate with their citizens at scale. It's really intriguing. You know, we did it through radio. To some extent, we played around with TV. But actually, this digital world is providing a range and sophistication of tools and platforms which we've never encountered before to kind of make that paradox work. It is actually possible 
really possible to be intimate with a lot of people at the same time and have a wonderful political and bureaucratic and organisational effect if you're prepared to learn how to harness these new rhythms and these new tools because they do demand a certain amount from you as a leader. Uh, if you're prepared to step up, they offer you, um, I think, almost untold, uh, I was going to say unprecedented, but certainly it's at the scale we're talking about, uh, almost unprecedented opportunities for engaging your communities, bearing in mind why that's important in the first place to give them a deep sense about what you're doing on their behalf and why that's important. And I go back to my opening remark. This is still always fundamentally about the core currency of good government, which is about trust. And if you don't have the trust, then you don't have anything. Good quality, digital, intimate conversations and communications is essentially one of the most powerful fuels, if you like, uh, for the trust dividend from which good government has always uh, worked and increasingly needs to needs to be grounded now. And as part of this process of, of digital transformation too, Martin, one of the key audiences in that is talent. People that are working within the public sector, yes, but also people who are looking at the public sector as a place to work. And I think We've talked a lot about how we can communicate that process and how we can communicate um, progress, as you said, with those small pieces of, of communications. From a talent perspective, how are leaders, again, from what you've seen, from what, you, uh, what you've observed, how are she does, leaders not only sharing or doing digital transformation, I suppose, but sharing these powerful stories to resonate, to attract the talent that they're actually going to need to deliver on these projects? It's a really important audience. It's huge. It's really interesting. I'm doing some work at the moment, and I won't say where because it's still sort of developing and probably not appropriate to talk about it too openly just yet, although I'd very much like to as we get going. I am working with a jurisdiction in Australia at the moment around an idea which is developing, I guess, what one might call an, an employee value proposition. Um, in other words, what is it that this particular jurisdiction might want to be able to offer the talent and expertise it would like to attract into the public service? You know, what, what would be the, you know, what, what's the what's the offer? Yeah, what's the game? Um, now, it's not the first time that issue has been talked about, but I think you're right. I think increasingly, not just because at the moment, the whole talent and skills and expertise um, issue is at such an acute crisis, frankly, um, in just about every sector you can think of. I, I don't think I need to tell anyone who's listening to this podcast why that's significant right now. Um, but I think in the public sector, it's particularly acute because what we've got is a situation where the nature of the public problems that we are asking our public servants to grapple with, often very much with in association with a lot of people outside government, so partnerships and collaboration, but nonetheless, the nature of these public problems has never been more complex and more entangled and twisted and wicked and all those other big words. So in a way, our desire to be able to get hold of or get access to the requisite talent is at a premium. Much of that talent is going to make a judgment about whether it's worth getting into this public service or public work game, either inside government or in the broader community of collaborators around these big public problems. They're going to make a judgment about whether it's worth getting into that on the basis of the nature and the nature of the work that they're expected to do and the way they are going to be allowed to work. In particular, and for a, not just, I think, a younger cohort, but certainly for a particular mindset, this ability Indeed, almost this expectation that when you come into this space to work on these complex, wicked, interesting, difficult challenges, you are actually going to be expected to use those skills and will be 
given opportunities to develop those skills of intimacy and of storytelling and of engagement. It's going to be part and parcel. Now, if there's a sense that you're, you know, part of this talent pool outside government, wondering whether you should take the leap, and I must say, I speak quite often to people who ring me up or people I know who say, oh, I'm just thinking about my next career move, you know, should I go and work in the public service? And I always say yes, but have a good think about where you're going, the context in which you're going, and the kind of leadership environment into which you will be playing, because you have an increasing opportunity to make some level of demand, if you like, about the nature of that environment in a way which uh, satisfies the instincts you have about the way you want to work. So long story short, I think the offer from the public service and the public purpose sector, if I can use a phrase that's close to my heart, uh, to requisite talent has got to be an offer that includes the ability to live and work this way. Otherwise, we're going to find it, I think, increasingly difficult to entice and engage and then to keep and retain the kind of talent that we need to tackle the kind of problems that we face. And that's a conundrum that if we don't break that cycle, you know, frankly, we're all in deep, deep trouble, I think. A, a connected or even an engaged public service is a much more effective public service. So, And much more appealing, absolutely. don't you think? If I was to say to you, so, Roger, you know, what I want you to do is come and help me do this sort of work and I'm going to expect you to be connected and engaged and blah, blah, blah. Like you're going to think to yourself, gee, that sounds like a proposition I can handle. Um, if I get you in there, as I know happens, and particularly to relatively young people who go into the public sector and they say, gee, I got in there and within the first two weeks I was told I couldn't say this and I wasn't allowed to make this comment and I had to stop using Twitter this way or whatever, you know. Now, some of that may, may, there may be some legitimate reasons, but my point is that so often I hear stories, and again, it's anecdotes, but I hear stories of younger people or others making a sort of sideways transition into the public service who just can't understand why suddenly the ways in which they, they know they would be comfortable, not just working, but being effective, for some reason, you know, all sorts of uh, constraints and all sorts of uh, prohibitions seem to be raining down onto them and they're just wondering what on earth is going on. Not a very attractive proposition. So, yeah, I think... I think we're furiously agreeing um, that the nature of the offer, the nature of the context into which you are expecting and uh, inviting people to come and help you do this difficult, difficult work um, is pretty critical um, if people are going to make that leap. So who are the people, Martin? We've kind of, we've talked around specific examples, I suppose, and it's it's great to, to capture some of these theories and experiences that you have. Do you, can you share with us... Um, specific individuals uh, that come to mind when you think about best practice in this, in this space, people who across uh, elected officials and bureaucrats at that leadership level, people who are doing this incredibly effectively that listeners should go and have a look at, people that they can model mm. their own behaviours from or learn from themselves to get comfortable in this space. Great point. I'm going to pick a couple of examples I have used before. And I'm going to use them because I know both of these people you know, reasonably well and I follow their if you like, the, the way they're uh, the way they're crafting their intimate uh, engagement kind of process. One of them is a bureaucrat, a senior bureaucrat. Mike Kaiser is his name. He's currently the head of uh, the Department of State Development, Infrastructure and Local Government in Queensland. Uh, former, he had a short stint as a politician in Queensland, and he was also um, very much involved in in the sort of political arena as well, and and, and you know political parties. So he's had a very interesting uh, career. He's had a consulting career, and so on. He was with KPMG, I think. If you go and look at the way Mike is using LinkedIn, I think it's a 
I was going to say perfect lesson. I mean, no, no one's perfect, but it's a fabulous object lesson in how a very senior and very serious and very significant public leader is using LinkedIn to do two or three things. The first thing he uses it for is to provide in, in sensible and measured ways a little bit of a sense about who Mike Kaiser is. So every now and then you find him doing little posts where he just infiltrates little bits of information about, you know, the music he's interested in or, you know, his background in, I don't know, sort of underground headbanging music in Queensland in the 1970s. I don't know, whatever it is. Like he's got a really interesting track record in a lot. So every now and then there are bits of Mike Kaiser that turn up and you think, yeah, that's and, – and there's nothing more engaging than finding out something really kind of uh, interesting about somebody. So he does that. Second thing he does is he uses his LinkedIn narrative to do what we were talking about earlier, which is relatively small. I don't mean small as in not significant, but relatively small chunks of pieces of news, pieces of information, ideas even sometimes, which are neatly encapsulated in a relatively short sort of LinkedIn post, usually with a link, always with a human story, and always then with a link to a bigger a bigger. Um, uh, agenda, bigger context. So he's a very good, uh, he's a very good and regular and consistent contributor to a sort of stream of engagement and communication. Where you, I mean, really and truly, over time, you really do build up the sense that you're beginning to get to know this guy. But the third thing he does is he uses it as a platform to explain what's important to him in his work around the big policy goals and priorities that the state of Queensland and, to some extent, the Australia as a nation is trying to is trying to push. I remember when he was the head of the resources department, which is the department he was leading just before his current role, where he made the move relatively recently. He spent a lot of his LinkedIn posts explaining why a resources department in the contemporary context was such an important part of the shift and the transition to a green economy you know, the mining of um, rare uh, minerals and all that sort of stuff. Like he explained it really well in the context of big public agendas that he knew very well people were worried about, uh, pollution, uh, the green economy, uh, jobs, all that kind of stuff. So those are the three things that I think Mike does very well. Some personal, something personal, uh, not not all the time, don't get me wrong. There's nothing worse, frankly, than somebody who's in a position of leadership spending their entire time on LinkedIn or wherever else, frankly, telling you all about themselves all the time. It's uh, pretty much the way not to go. But he does it very well and with some degree of care and some degree of sophistication. And then these small but significant stories told well and linked to the big, the big picture. And then this sense of Mike engaging a little bit around you know, some of the big agenda items and policy and so on that are driving uh, debate more generally in the public. And he does it always in a way which I think is deeply respectful of his professional role as a public servant. It's not partisan other than his engagement and enthusiasm and passion for the issues and the people he works with. Um, it's not partisan. It's not political. You know, it's not um, me, me, me. You know, look at me. I'm Mike Kaiser. It's nothing like that at all. Um, it's all about the issues. I might say, by the way, perhaps a fourth thing, he uses it very well to constantly boost and reinforce and give public recognition to his team and the people he works with. There's a very human dimension to Mike Kaiser. And that's perhaps the crossover to my second example, which is Victor Dominello. And there'll be many people perhaps on this podcast who are followers of Victor anyway, because if they're listening to this podcast, they might be very interested generally in the digital transformation story. And there are very few politicians who are doing this any better than he is and have done over time. Go and have a look at his LinkedIn 
apart from the fact that he spends quite a lot of time telling you all about his mother and what she can and can't do on digital on digital platforms, and that's rather cute and it's very uh, very effective. Victor has absolutely, I think, um, crafted a very powerful, if I can put it, intimate portrait of himself at scale around the things that matter to him. And what are those? The state's agenda, his own personal political and policy agenda, don't get me wrong. Dominello is a minister, he's got to deliver, and he wants to tell us about, about the work he's doing. But he's also very good at linking what he's delivering back to why that's valuable and significant for the people of New South Wales and therefore these big agendas. Same thing with Mike. Victor is on LinkedIn regularly. He uses it assiduously. He uses it very carefully. Um, He's not disrespectful. There's a nice tone about it. And every now and then, as I say again, a little bit of a glimpse of Victor Dominello, the man, and Victor Dominello, if you like, the sort of bundle of passions and interests that drive him both as a politician and frankly as a as a human being and it's i can't tell you i i just think it's incredibly effective um you look at the number of people who follow him number of people who like him like his posts i mean i'm talking about hundreds often thousands i mean this is a sort of audience engagement if you like or a a sort of an intimacy at a scale that's just frankly impossible any other way and he's absolutely He's, I think he's absolutely mastered it, and it's a, it's a very impressive thing to watch. So I think from what you were saying before around this concept of intimacy, and that's threaded through everything that you just spoke about there around Mike and Minister Dominello. So looking at those examples, there is intimacy, but it's intimacy in context and then at scale. And I think that's the sweet spot. If, if people working across the public sector and people working within government more broadly, if they can find that sweet spot between what is on their agenda what they're on the hook for, if you want to look at it that way, what matters to them personally, what is part of their human story, and then harnessing the channels where people are, where they're listening, where they're connecting, where they can be engaged, and where you too can listen. That's the sweet spot that everyone can plug into. So they are some great examples, Martin, that I would absolutely reinforce and encourage everyone to have a look at. Look, this has been such a valuable and practical conversation, Martin, so thank you. I really appreciate your time. That's a pleasure. If people do have questions or encouragements from today's show what's the best way for them to reach you oh they can if they go onto my website which is publicpurpose.com.au so public purpose all one word exactly as it sounds uh, they'll find both me and an email address and they can get in touch with me straight away there's no problem about that or if they know you they can get in touch through you and through the uh, podcast and through propel that would be great too very happy to play your secretary for a day that'd be very fun <laughs> thank, thank, you. thank you very much and look martin Appreciate thanks it. so much for sharing your insights i'm sure listeners will have got a lot from today's episode. Thanks for being part of your digital reputation. Real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks again for listening. If you've learned something from today's conversation, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with others. For all show notes, head to propelgroup.com.au. Thanks again for listening.